What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. Former President Trump appeared in federal court today, this time for his immunity claims related to the January 6th attack. He didn't have to be there. He showed up voluntarily at the courthouse in D.C. and just a few days before the Iowa caucuses. This is shaping up to be a key strategy for Trump in 2024, mixing his courtroom arguments with his campaign pitch to voters. They ought to release the J6 hostages. They've suffered enough. They ought to release them. I call them hostages. Some people call them prisoners. I call them hostages. Release the J6 hostages, Joe. Release them, Joe. You can do it real easy, Joe. He's trying to position himself being prosecuted for trying to overturn the election as part of the same persecution for being Trump supporters that people in the riot have been arrested for. And the latest escalation of that is he's now saying hostages, which is even more inflammatory. Isaac Arnsdorf is a national political reporter for The Post. He's been covering Trump's 2024 re-election bid. In the MAGA movement, January 6th symbolizes the larger sense of being robbed, of the election being stolen, of the presidency and power being taken away from them, and that being the thing that this campaign is about to redeem that defeat. Republicans' views of Trump have softened in the three years since the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. That's according to a recent poll from the Washington Post and University of Maryland. The poll found that Republicans are more likely to absolve Trump of responsibility for January 6th than they were in 2021. So when we polled in 2021, how many Republicans think Trump bears responsibility for the attack on the Capitol, it was 27%. Uh, Now that's down to 14%. If you ask the average Republican, January 6th was a peaceful protest. It's time to move on. The prosecutions of rioters uh, have been too harsh. Trump was not responsible. And the prosecutions of Trump himself are a political witch hunt. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Tuesday, January 9th. Today, how Republicans' feelings about Trump have shifted and the Trump campaign's strategy to secure a victory in the primaries. Why should we be paying attention to how Americans' views about the January 6th attack have shifted or not shifted. How is this relevant to 2024 and the upcoming election? Because when it happened, it could have been the end for Trump. And a lot of Republicans thought it was and wanted it to be. And that's obviously not the case now because he is by far leading in the polls to be the nominee again. So how could the president, who to a large extent left office isolated and disgraced, 
come back to be the nominee again. That's interesting to me. So first, before we continue, I do want to understand how Trump is leading in the GOP polls and whether that that has shifted. Was that always the case? Because it felt like for a while there, especially I'm thinking about the 2022 midterms, that he wasn't doing as well among Republican voters. So where does he stand now and how has that evolved? Yeah, so there were sort of two near-death experiences for Trump's political career. Right after January 6th, kind of disappears for a while, goes to Mar-a-Lago, skips the inauguration, basically no staff, basically no public appearances, really isolated, really angry. And there's a rehabilitation, the political rehabilitation there that brings him back to have a dominant role in the midterms. And then, again, when the midterms don't go well for Republicans, and a lot of people blame Trump for that, that's another moment of political weakness Mm. where Republicans were saying, enough with this guy. Like, he's toxic. There's no way that if he's our nominee that he's going to succeed. Right. Um, And pinning their hopes on Ron DeSantis instead. Mm -hmm. But that, again, didn't last. And he managed to recover from that and become the favorite as we're heading into the first nominating contest this month. So... Views about January 6th, it also is prompting me to wonder how Republicans feel about the legitimacy of the 2020 election, because those two issues are hand in hand in in some ways. So what did this Washington Post poll find about how Republican voters feel about the legitimacy of the 2020 election? Has that changed? Do, Do they now have more doubt about it than they did previously? Yes, uh, those views have hardened. Those doubts have spread and that, you know, that goes hand in hand with Trump's comeback because you couldn't have Trump where he is in the polls if you didn't have Republicans buying what he's saying in every speech about how the election was rigged. Yeah, and we should say there is no evidence at all that shows the 2020 election was rigged. How do voters, when they hear these these pieces of evidence, when they hear this, how do they respond? Like, what is their thinking? How do they contend with this? I mean, probably the answer I most often hear is like, there's no way that Biden really got 78 million votes. I don't know anyone who voted for Joe Biden. So it's, you know, the details don't really matter. Uh, You know, they're always changing you know, it, it, and it's kind of non-falsifiable in that sense. Like, you know, you can debunk as many of the specific allegations as you want, and there'll be more specific allegations that come up because it's just, it's not about the details. It's about the feeling that this wasn't what was supposed to happen. So, Isaac, I want to understand how Trump managed to pull that off. How did he go from seeming weak to, you know, now being the favorite, essentially, and being in this very strong position heading into these early primary states? So a few factors. One is that his campaign found a sweet spot. They called it the right amount of Trump, which was reminding Republican voters what they liked about him, seeing him projecting leadership and being charismatic and not seeing too much of him... Overexposed. It's like such a thing about being in media, right? 
Well, and it's a funny thing because he still did totally crowd out the other Republicans in terms of how much media coverage he got. So first it was in that initial period trying to calibrate his exposure, Mm -hmm. um, kind of giving Republicans a chance to forget why they were mad about him Mm -hmm. and remember why they liked him. And the final thing that we have to mention is the indictments. A Georgia case marking the fourth indictment of the ex-president since the end of March. Two federal cases and two state prosecutions. Mr. Trump denying the latest accusations and blasting... Which had the effect of totally taking all the oxygen away from all the other candidates, pressuring other Republicans, including his rivals for the nomination, to come to his defense. And so uh, I think it's an example uh, of this criminalization of politics. Uh, I don't think that this is something that's good for the country. If Donald Trump's the nominee, yes, I will support him. And if I'm the president, yes, I will pardon him because that will help reunite the country. And also causing a lot of Republican primary voters to want to support him because they viewed the indictments as wrong. That's pretty fascinating to me that these indictments, which it sounds like what you're saying is, this is helping him politically by galvanizing this, that, you know, he's the first former president to be facing criminal charges. He's been indicted in four different cases. How did these indictments actually help him among his base? Well, in the primary, we have to be clear, you know, it could be totally different in the general. We really don't know if the trials are going to happen. We don't know if he's going to be convicted. So, you know, not speaking about how this plays in the general Mm -hmm. with swing voters and independents, but just focusing on Republicans, it's clear that his campaign successfully positioned the prosecutions as a continuation of the investigations and the impeachments from his presidency. And I don't like that, and you don't like that either. Biden and his protectors know he cannot win this race any other way. So now they're trying something that hasn't been tried in this country, election interference. They rigged the presidential election of 2020. We're not going to allow them to rig the presidential election of 2024. And voters bought in when Trump says, they're not coming after me, they're coming after you, I'm being indicted for you. They really accept that. Isaac, hearing you describe this, it almost feels like a throwback to a prior moment in time. But it's remarkable because there was a year or two where it felt like perhaps Republican voters moved on. And and I wonder how much of that had to do with this question of, electability in a general election that maybe they feel like, you know, the 2020 election wasn't legitimate and Trump, you know, is being targeted with these um, indictments. But we have to be real and how who's going to fare best in, in a general election? How is the question of electability figuring into people's minds right now? Well, I don't think you saw Republican voters moving on from that. I mean, I think one of the clear messages from the midterms was that the general electorate didn't like that stuff. Um, Independents didn't like that stuff. Swing voters didn't like that stuff. But if you look at who Republicans nominated, election deniers, you know, electability was not the main concern Mm. for them. Now, a lot of Republican strategists and some Republican politicians 
looked at that coming out of the midterms and said, okay, so we've got a Trump problem. We've got an election denial problem. We need to cut that out. But is the base taking that lesson away? Well, I mean, that's kind of the only thing that Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and some of these outside groups that are opposing Trump, that electability question is kind of the only thing that they try. Republicans have lost the last seven out of eight popular votes for president. That is nothing to be proud of. We should want to win the majority of Americans. But the only way we're going to do that is if we leave the negativity and the baggage behind and we go towards a new generational leader. Because when they did the research about like, well, can you attack Trump for being soft on crime? Can you attack Trump for supporting the vaccines? Can you attack Trump for not following through on building the wall? None of that stuff worked. And it actually backfired. Even if you just like said, you know, Trump has this position and candidate X holds this position, it was worse for candidate X because the voters in the focus group thought that that was an implicit attack on Trump. Oh, wow. So, so like the only message that kind of worked was, you know, too much drama. Can he win? Do we need to move on? And so that's what you've seen them all trying. And I mean... <laughs> Doesn't seem to be working. Well, not with the people who like the drama, not with the mm. people who still really like what he did as president and still really like him personally, uh, including personality. But, you know, Republican primary voters have not shown themselves to prioritize electability the way the Democrats have. After the break, Isaac explains how the tactics and theme of Trump's campaign come down to one word, revenge. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. So, Isaac, we've talked about how Trump has reignited his base. But what I want to understand more about is how the Trump campaign, sort of behind the scenes, the mechanics of how all of this works, how they've been able to take more control of the Republican primary and nomination process on a broader scale. So can you walk me through some of the features of of what they're doing? Yeah, this is not your 2016 Trump campaign where it was, you know, a lot of people who couldn't get a job with other candidates and didn't have a lot of experience and were constantly fighting among themselves and stabbing each other in the back and leaking. This is a much more disciplined and professional operation than he's had in the past. They have been able to accomplish a lot of kind of inside baseball. Like the boring stuff, the rules and how all this stuff works. Yeah, exactly. It's actually very consequential. Yeah, exactly. Like he is the, the way that you become the nominee is you get a majority of the delegates at the Republican National Convention. So they went around to the different states 
um, as they were setting their rules for how the delegates are chosen. And they did stuff like in Louisiana, Trump had a problem where he actually won the primary, but the literal people who were the delegates in Louisiana were not Trump people. Mm. And so he didn't win a majority of the delegates. And so this time they went in and they made sure that the people who get chosen as delegates are going to be Trump loyal people. Um, and then there were other states like Massachusetts or California where they they made the rule so that if any candidate gets uh, more than 50% in the primary, they're going to get all the delegates, which particularly in California, that's 14% of the delegates you need. Wow. So that's a huge prize. And Trump realistically is the only candidate who can do that. You know, you talked about how this Trump campaign operation is very different than ones in the past because of its level of discipline. What about the themes and messages that his campaign and Trump himself is, that they're pushing now? How does that compare to previous campaigns? Revenge. (laughs) I mean... Revenge 2024. I mean, he's quite explicit about that. In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add... I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. And this is how so much of the campaign is actually about defending himself from these prosecutions and this idea the Biden presidency was illegitimate and the White House was wrongly taken from them and they're going to they're going to get it back. Uh, you know, they're going to change everything back to the way it was when Trump was president. And they're going to punish all the people who took it away. I will fire the unelected bureaucrats and shadow forces who have weaponized our justice system like it has never been weaponized before. Sick. These are sick people. I mean, beyond rhetoric, do you have any sense or has your reporting shown any sense of how that could all become a reality? It's absolutely not rhetoric. I mean, there are people, not so much in the campaign itself, because the campaign is very small, but people who are in touch with the campaign, people who would be very likely would become officials in a second Trump White House, who are in the process of putting pen to paper. They would use the Justice Department to go after Trump's critics and uh, political opponents. Um, They could invoke the Insurrection Act on his first day on Inauguration Day, uh, which would empower him to deploy the military against protests. And, you know, he's talking about deploying the military as well to assist in a deportation operation that he describes as would be the largest in history um, on a scale that, that we've never seen of detaining and removing immigrants. Isaac, I mean, just stepping back and thinking about all of this, you know, this sort of messaging, rhetoric, and approach, it's helping Trump right now lead in the polls. It could lead to him being the nominee. How will this all play if, in fact, he is the nominee in a general election? Could this all kind of come back and, and make it even harder for him to win against, let's say, President Biden? That's the bet that the Biden campaign is making. And and we got a real sense of that on Friday in the speech that Biden gave in Pennsylvania. His first rally for the 2024 campaign opened with a choir of January 6th insurrectionists singing from prison on a cell phone. 
while images of the January 6th riot played on a big screen behind him at his rally. Can you believe that? This is like something out of a fairy tale. Bad fairy tale. Where he he tried to frame this race as a choice between democracy and authoritarianism. Uh, And he was calling Trump out very clearly as what he views as a threat to democracy, a threat to freedom, even um, pointing out the ways that Trump has been using language that is uh, very close to what we've heard from authoritarians in the past. This year is just going to be so unpredictable. The overlap between the campaign calendar and the court proceedings. You know, currently the federal trial over Trump's efforts to overturn the election is scheduled to start the day before Super Tuesday. Mm. Um, But it's on hold currently because first the D.C. Circuit and then almost certainly the Supreme Court will have to review Trump's claim that he's immune from prosecution for actions as president. So like... You know, we don't know if that's going to happen, when that's going to happen, what that's going to look like. Uh, He's going to be flying back and forth between the courthouse and the campaign trail or just coming out to the microphones at the court to make it a campaign stop. Like, it's just we've never seen anything like this. Isaac, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Isaac Arnsdorf is a national political reporter for The Post. His new book is called Finish What We Started, The MAGA Movement's Ground War to End Democracy. It comes out in April. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Arjun Singh. It was mixed by Rennie Svernovsky and edited by Lucy Perkins. Thanks to Emma Talkoff. If you love our show, help other people discover it by leaving a rating on Spotify or a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.